fundamentally, it's also an imaginative exercise. To feel what you're feeling, even though you're different than me, is an imaginative exercise. What is it like to be a person in a wheelchair? What is it like to be homeless? And that's the creative work we all do in making ourselves, in making our stories, in making our pictures of the world. And this is a sense in which we're all artists, and that those of us who have the title are just trying to give people the tools to do that work themselves. Well, here we are at Democracy in Color, bringing you part two of a two-part special featuring three titans of the literary world, thought leaders Rebecca Solnit, Jeff Chang, and David Kim. You can listen to both episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. While you're there, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Enjoy. we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first class citizens. So I'm here with uh, David Kim and Jeff Chang and Rebecca Solnit. Jeff was making a point about Kaepernick, and you got it. You got me on that. So let me hear this. Uh, you know, like the appropriate way for students to protest. Uh, this notion that students shouldn't be yelling at their faculty, or they shouldn't be asking for trigger warnings because they are upsetting. Uh, the uh, authority of the classroom and they are stepping on the bounds of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and those kinds of things. Um, and, and sort of getting at this, this sort of, um, hmm, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, di- a digression from the issues that are actually at stake, right? Sometimes uh, arguments begin and the language that we use isn't necessarily where we want it to be, but is that a reason to say we should stop arguing and you should just listen to me now? But it's a, the quality of the arguments that we've been having. I mean, mm-hmm. the name we haven't invoked yet is Obama. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that his election changed how we talk about race. His election changed the kind of moral expectations of what we have in the political culture. And what happened to him in the first term, what happened to him in the second term, the, 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 the fortification of an ideological positioning, mm-hmm. saying nothing this president is going to pass will be acceptable. And you felt this constraining of the spirit. You felt this. I mean, I think one of the things we're seeing now amongst young folks and otherwise is it's not just moral courage, search for hope. I mean, you know, we've talked about this about love and about compassion, about generosity, I mean, to me, the intersectional piece here is a willingness to be generous with each other. I think that's a much more insightful way of what I was trying to talk about with kids who refuse, you know, non-separateness is a Buddhist way of describing Mm -hmm. compassion, refusing to be separate, Mm -hmm. you know, from queer people, from people of color, from, you know, people of other genders and things. And seeing, and that is a kind of love that's a fierce political and ideological thing, That's but it's right. still, it comes from the heart and it is, a, it is love. And yeah. I think there's, 
But there is a lot of it out there. There is a lot of it out there. But when, you know, when Obama mm. came into office, it wasn't in the culture. It wasn't. I mean, it didn't feel like people were accessing things. I mean, there was a clearly invocation of hope, right? Clearly invocation of change. But you know, when we saw the kinds of austerity people were feeling, like, oh well, you can only have one thing, right? You can't. You can't argue for everything. You can only, You have to pick one thing, and that's it. Well, I know, uh, and David, you've you know written and spoken a lot about public expressions of love and what's needed in our culture mm-hmm. and society, what would heal our democracy. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that because for me, I didn't, until you'd said it, uh, this public display of love might be uh, actually refusing to be separate. I, yeah. d- I just never had th- thought mm-hmm. about that. I'm sure there's some other uh, ways of thinking about that as being like the missing link in terms of what we're desperately in need of right now. Yeah. I mean, I think about you know the willingness of folks now to take risks about being together. You know, I mean, if you think about political solidarity, you know, there's this mode of saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be covetous. I'm not going to say it's just about me. But to take that risk and say, you know what, I'm going to try to feel your suffering. I'm trying to witness your suffering and to try to do work together, you know, from a, a profoundly compassionate space of understanding that suffering. That's love. You know, and, and, and we don't we, – we need to be in a space. We need to have that kind of courage to say, okay, this is not just acceptable but necessary. This is not just an option, but this is something we must do. We're not going to get through the new race wars. We're not going to get through all of these things that are befalling us. The environment, my God. Right. And we just If we think it's just what happens on the coast of California, if I think just what happens on the coast of Rhode Island, but not the lowlands of the Philippines – Right, not in South Africa. I was really struck, uh, 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 Jeff, uh, when you made a, a, a comment about progressives. What happens mm-hmm. amongst progressives? They're okay with, uh, you know, you know, hey, Cavernip, that's that's nice, uh, but not during nine eleven. Kind of like there's a beyond which there's a line beyond which we won't. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we got some work to do, and I know Rebecca, you've, I've appreciated everything you've written about, you know, get it together, progressives. We need a uh, a, a way to think about and be with each other that's we need to evolve that um, and to and to appreciate i mean one thing that you do yeah. Rebecca, yeah. Is to say appreciate yeah, yeah no I, you know it's funny because i feel like a lot of people on the left come from the mainstream and their critique is of the mainstream i kind of come from the left and a lot of my critique is of that of the destructive what I see is a puritanical instinct to think anything that isn't perfect is not good enough, mm. to find fault with each other, to get sectarian mm-hmm. and stuff. And those are not all. And what's interesting that I'm gradually realized by being in the activist world, mostly through the graces of my wonderful brother, David, you've worked with, yes. mm-hmm. written a book with. Love him. Mm-hmm. And is that what we call, and there's, we, the only people who should really be called activists are people who are actively making the world, you know, changing the world. There's all these people in that environment who are really kind of the baggage and the and the block blockaders where they're kind of like, oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you're not, you know, oh, you're morally impure. And like if you ever actually get any change the world, you usually do it by connecting to people who don't share all your values, by working mm-hmm. with it with as well as against institutions, et cetera. So it's interesting looking also. And I see 
you know, I also see this younger generation. I, of course, there's all kinds of people. You know, I spend a lot of time in feminism, a lot of time in the climate movement, but I see a lot of people who do get past that in a beautiful way. And it's interesting because if love is feeling that connectedness, that willingness to be with, it's this is really kind of. And David, can we call it the opposite of love? This, this is like this is how you're not. This is how we're different. This is how you're not good enough. This is how I can't be part of you, and you're not part of me. Yeah, I mean, and it's, <clears throat> yeah, I wouldn't even use stronger language. I mean, it's not just yeah. hate. It's not just anger. I mean, you know, I've been thinking a lot about evil lately. Mm. Yeah, you know that there's a there's a a fight here. That there's a persistence with the evil in the world. Mm. And that you know, love to me is something that you have, you draw on precisely because evil is so stubborn. Mm. It's interesting because people think hate is the opposite of love, but I wonder whether it's fear because this mm. is very fear-driven yes. behavior yes. where I need to bolster my identity because I'm afraid you're going to attack me for not being good enough. So right. I'm going to attack you for not being good enough. You're not pure enough, or you're not mm-hmm. doing it right, or you know, and stuff like that. And so it's very fear-driven. Fear-driven, anxiety-riddled. Like, yeah. I think part of the revolution is how do you create spaces in which people feel safe enough to experiment, to trust each other, to ask real questions from the depths, to mm. be able, you know. And I remember my own learning curve in the 80s around multiculturalism stuff, like people are going to come in who don't understand things yet, and how do you... How do you let them learn rather than punish them? You know, how do you let them be at the starting line rather than punish them for not reaching the finish line? And I'm really struck by how much shift um, we have. uh, You know, we're talking about race and all of you have written about it and talked about it. You know, you have a a society where uh, the structures are built around um, white people. you know, white people's success, trying to make them successful. And the whole time those structures have been built, other people weren't able to access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, with the shift requires millions and millions of people who identify as white change the way they think. And I usually talk about the progressive movement, you know, where I'm like, mm-hmm. I have PTSD from dealing with progressives who say they're so <laughs> they're so awesome and that they have racism. Um, but, you know, and, you know and, and so all of these things have to shift. And I you know, I, I, I just wanted to, to to pull that out a little bit, too, which is to say that the difficulty is that we're trying to do all of this um, at the same time that the opposition is pressing so hard on us. Right. right? And so part of the things that we've seen um, in just our little neck of the woods around, you know, student movement and student protests is the trauma that this revives for a lot of young folks being mm-hmm. now put through the system right now they're uh now they're in a court uh situation where the da is trying to throw the book at them because they did a sit-in um on you know on the hayward san mateo bridge right and and the kind of um infighting that then happens um that breaks out between um young activists um about like the why didn't you catch my back or why why didn't you do this or blah 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 all these kinds of uh, things that repeat all of these traumatic um, types of cycles that many of us already bring to the table when we're, you know, um, coming to the work, right? And so the, 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 the difficult part, I think, is trying to figure out that piece, right, mm-hmm. of, of how are we healing ourselves at the same time that we're moving the work forward um, while we are... Uh, uh, fighting this huge fight that's happening yeah. all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that kind of caretaking that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we can 
cast aspersions on the idea of self-care, but you have to take care of yourself mm-hmm. in the midst of this. I mean, you're right. I mean, the assault, and each other. Yeah, and each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I, I mean, I was thinking about this when you were saying, Amy, that you know, if, the, if white folks begin to concede domination or white feminists concede the center. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah. it's it's it, right. but but it requires it requires right. a great deal of com- <laughs> right. What? Yeah. Right, but it actually requires a great deal of compassion to say like, what is it actually to give up power? What is it to actually give? You know, so I you know, I was at a meeting with um, the great civil rights activist Ruby Sales, and we were talking about love and race, and she admonished the group. You know, all good pious progressives, hmm. and she said, there are white folks in Appalachia. You know, working class, blue collar, they're really suffering. And, you know, many folks who are, in, she says this as an African American that's been in the, in, the, in the trenches for 50 years, more than 50 years, says, we have to pay attention to them. We have to extend our hearts to them. So it's not just, you know, attending to our own, but it's also that if we're going to be embattled with folks, what are we going to do once we actually begin to win? Or how are we going to help them so that we're really I, transforming the culture? I don't think we win unless we engage those people. And it's been, exactly. I remember exactly. when there was this moment in the 90s, for example, during the anti-globalization movement where people on in the alt-right were, had paranoia about black helicopters, you know, the black mm-hmm. helicopters. They saw the mm-hmm. UN as this scary one world government. And like, where was outreach to say, well, actually the WTO, the World Trade Organization, right. is that one world government. Here's, you know, we, they weren't offered... Right. The real explanations of why they were losing their jobs and their economic stability, et cetera. The right's been very good at um, the bait and switch of blaming mm-hmm. it on immigrants and people of color and affirmative action and mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. you know, every on the everybody else to white men. And the fact that it isn't a zero-sum game, that we can all succeed right. together. And, to, cause that, and that's what's interesting about Trump, as monstrous as he is, he's tapping into, I think, a lot of legitimate... That's right. You know, an illegitimate sense of loss of white privilege, but a legitimate sense of loss because this was a really prosperous country for more and more people mm-hmm. into the 1970s through uh, the Great Society, New Deal kinds mm-hmm. of programs. And those were all dismantled, starting with Prop 13 in California and mm-hmm. Reaganomics. Mm-hmm. And they've continued to be dismantled. And we don't have that story for people of here's why college will destroy you. Here's mm-hmm. why you you know you're, you have housing precariousness. Mm-hmm. Here's why your life isn't as good as your parents' life. Here's why there's no employment. Like those, a lot of those people are not being given those stories. The, the fact that Trump supporters are ferociously anti-free trade mm-hmm. is where, well, right. why we need to, you know, like what can we offer them? What can we, and, you know, and I think that, I think that there are other, that you know, we still need, we've done some amazing things. We still need to do a better job on storytelling, telling stories that reach out to them and that include them and don't have the kind of class discrimination that's been so much part of the left of that's like, right. Pretends all poor white people are racist, therefore we can make fun of right. them and yes. hate them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a class war disguised as anti-racism and mm. among white people that I have a really big problem with. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one talks about. Right. I've tried. Oh, Rebecca, uh, so for sure. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. but, I, but I, you know, this idea that we have to have compassion for those folks, those Trump supporters. They yeah. have, there are real reasons. Mm-hmm. And it varies. It varies. And the guy making $200,000 a year who just hates 
black people is very different than you know the people who lost whose jobs got shipped out with globalization in the 1990s who live in desperation. Like it, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, we t- we started the conversation talking about love. And yeah. Demo- now, now, lo- love your Trump supporter is a, mm. is a tough one. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one for me. Well, and and love, there's I mean, been so much hatred yeah. spewed. So how do I? How does someone like me get through that? I don't have the answer. Uh, <laughs> everybody's looking, everybody's I, looking I, at me. Just yeah. Jeff, hey, uh, Jeff. Hey, hey, David's the only one who's not in the magic bubble of the Bay Area. And That's I, right. I, I yeah. sat next to a Trump supporter on the way back from North Dakota, and that was really instructive. Mm. Well, you know, but we all live in these magic bubbles. I mean, the campus yeah. can be yeah. that yeah. way. Um, you know, where I live in the in the Northeast can feel that way. You know, I, I often talk about loving thy enemy as a, a monstrous demand. It comes from the religious traditions. Mm-hmm. You know? But if you really think about it, like what is it to actually love your enemy? Right. Like what do you have to give up? Or what do you have to extend in yourself to really love your enemy? Even just temporarily. Even just for a moment. Even to not hate them. Yeah. You know, to oppose right. them without hating them, which yeah. are very different things. Right. And the and the and the the depths of self-reflection that are required to say, what am I actually? What do I actually believe here? How consistent am I? Where's my integrity? Right. You know, am I really going to be that person that is generous, loving, compassionate, a, a fighter for freedom and justice? Yeah. Only for my own. Yeah. If we take our values to their natural endpoint, that's where they take us. Right? Is to try to figure out. Um, these kinds of answers and recognizing that it's a co-created type of space that we're not just seeking um, restoration uh, and wholeness for those who have been harmed, but what is the transformational arc for the person who is doing, who's been doing the harming. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, cause at, at the end of the day, uh, we're not, well, you know, Grace Lee Boggs always talks about revolution as not being this bloody thing. It's not. It's not something that's about sort of replacing one class of leadership with another. Um, it's about trying to figure out how you move people to a higher stage of human consciousness. Right. And and I think that that's sort of the very difficult thing. But that's sort of the essence, I think, of what folks are beginning to talk about now. And you look in the Movement for Black Lives platform, mm-hmm. and uh, there are. Um, there's a lot of talk in there and there's sort of a lot of um, undergirding, you know, um, uh, well, no, there's a lot of sort of planks that go back to this undergirding principle of what they're calling transformational justice right. now. And I think that that's, uh, that's the very, very difficult conversation. Oh, yeah. That's a very difficult conversation uh, to have. And like you said, it, it it's a different type of thing for the person who's making $250,000 and, and supporting Trump and, and the person who is making twenty five thousand dollars. But um, you know, and, yeah, and I just want to say that, you know we we could focus a lot on Trump supporters, but there's everybody else who's right. either indifferent yeah. or trying to figure it out or mm-hmm. out of the game or not. You know, just so there's there's everybody uh, that right. needs to go through something uh, to get to the other side. I just wanted to come back too, though, though to 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 your idea of uh, Rebecca of of. The opposite of love being fear, and then maybe the midpoint of that, what you're talking about here, Amy, is like indifference, right? The sort of Breaking Bad, yeah. sit on the couch, Doritos type of thing, right? <laughs> so, like, how how do we kind of 
move folks to from fear past indifference to love mm-hmm. is sort of the maybe the arc that we're we're well, talking remember, about i don't know remember king is said yeah. king said that he thought mm-hmm. indifference was worse than evil mm-hmm. right? indifference to justice is worse than evil and there's that line about the nazis that all it requires right. is for good men to do nothing mm-hmm. and we're a country with low voter turnout low mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in some ways i know there's a lot of participation in some ways compared to other countries in other ways a lot of apathy and it's funny i see a, a kind of mainstream culture. Whenever I watch sitcoms, I want to commit suicide <laughs> because they define what it means to be human. Please don't. Yeah. I don't. Well, I haven't had a TV in my adult life. It's like these these brief moments. I'm in a hotel, and it was more. It was a long time ago where I'd see like five minutes of Friends or Cheers or Sex in the City, and I would hate myself and humanity. <laughs> but I feel like they define down what it means to be human. You see a definition of being human that does not include being a citizen mm. and if anybody in a sitcom ever wanted to you know deal with climate change it would be a joke you don't have a soul you don't have those deep those heights and those depths of humanity you don't have mm. the breadth of being a citizen mm. it's like you took this huge thing that it means to be human and you cut it down to this little tiny safe domesticated Mm. unit and I feel like people get you know who are caught up on celebrity gossip but don't know who Uh, the representative is or what the laws are or why their economy you know is the way it is you know they've been reduced in some way by being told that their lives are not shaped by these forces and they don't have the ability to participate in them so I feel in the most fundamental level as a storyteller I'm trying to tell I'm trying to give people the biggest, broadest, deepest sense of self. Mm. And that love, in a sense, is that ability to extend out of yourself. And this is a reduced self where there isn't even anything. There's not a self to love. There's not others to love. And part of sitcoms is just that we're all basically motivated by selfish and ridiculous Mm. things. And, (laughs) you know, so but, Mm -hmm. but I think that's kind of a default setting for a lot of people in kind of mainstream pop culture, not necessarily listening to political hip-hop and to mm. some other stuff but that's what that's what people are being fed it makes them good consumers it makes them bad citizens well it keeps them i mean to jeff's point it keeps them afraid yeah and right. it's also it's, it's and a it, form of safety right well i think it makes them indifferent rather than afraid mm. and if, a fear is when you maybe fear is better than indifference fear is when you're looking at oh my god all these terrible things are rallied against mm. me or i don't trust the people around me indifference is like you know, where you don't even like middle class people who don't know there's poverty. Mm-hmm. And the way I see looking at nextdoor.com, that evil website, the way people talk, the mm-hmm. middle class right. people mm-hmm. with houses talk about the homeless and things like that. That kind of indifference, that refusal. And compassion literally is how you extend beyond the boundaries of your physical self That's to right. feel with and for others. And so it's that refusal to extend yourself, it's an inability to understand how profoundly you can extend and that extension that is compassion that's love but and then we always talk about it as an emotional thing but fundamentally it's also an imaginative exercise Absolutely. to feel what you're feeling Absolutely. even though you're different than me right. is an imaginative exercise what is it like to be a person in a wheelchair what is it like mm-hmm. to be homeless what is it like mm-hmm. to be you know an old white Trump supporter who doesn't even can't imagine these things. What is it like to be withered in your imagination like mm. that? 
So this act of imagination, I think, is so foundational to all the work. And, you know, in that act of imagination, whether I'm just telling myself what it's like to being you across the table, you know, or what it's like being in, you know, uh, Laos last mm-hmm. week or, you know, mm-hmm. or at Standing Rock or, mm-hmm. you know, in Ferguson, that's an ima- that's creative work. And that's the creative work we all do in making ourselves and making our stories and making our pictures of the world. And this is a sense in which we're all artists and that mm-hmm. those of us who have the title mm-hmm. are just trying to give people... The, the tools to do that work themselves. Oh, that is beautiful. It's beautiful. That I'd never really beautiful. thought that uh, we're suffering from a lack of imagination as a country. Oh, we're yeah. We're suffering from a lack of imagination. Well, and those destructive stories, and it's funny because I've written about it recently, like when people, you see those horrible pictures of white people picnicking at lynchings, what they're celebrating mm. is that they have killed their imaginations and they've killed their empathies. Mm. It's like, and, I, and that's the only way I can imagine. I've thought about that. It's like, how can you bring your kids to a lynching? And it's like, this is a sort of test to see if you've completely failed, if you've completely built barriers between yourself and others. Mm. And, um, you know, and we have that happen in so many ways where, I mean, what is rape culture about? Mm. What are those fraternities where mm. people gang rape, where it's like, because you're a different gender, I cannot imagine your humanity. I cannot imagine you as having value, as having rights. And I am demonstrating the supremacy of masculinity mm-hmm. and the worthlessness of femininity, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And that's yeah. happening. Our All our finest universities are, are graduating lots and lots of men like that. This failure of empathy is as active an exercise practiced as wholeheartedly as empathy yeah. and do you know and it's and it's like how do we how well, do we and, change and, and, that and the demand for that you know so that you know that courageous woman at columbia carrying oh, that mattress the, uh, around emma Solkowitz. that's right that's right emma Solkowitz. so carrying that mattress around campus all year and then young women across the country carrying these mattresses insisting saying look After don't hide the first day, she never had to carry it alone that's right mm-hmm. that's right mm-hmm. but what happened in graduation day lee bullen Refused to shake her hand at graduation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a, you know, and a whole lot of people are going to hold that against him for the rest of yeah. his career. Yeah, no, it made me mm-hmm. rethink his own legacy. I mean, the, the you know, the the person who put that case, uh, the affirmative action case for Michigan mm-hmm. before he came to Columbia, mm-hmm. yeah. and I thought, I can't see you the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? And the history is still being written. Mm-hmm. The thing is, oh yeah, you know, I I um, when you. You brought up the specter of the images of mm. uh, people picnicking under the Adelaide trees. The, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm uh, writing a book that will be out in January called She the People, mm. um, The New Politics of Women of Color. Mm. And I recall as a little, little girl going through a coffee table book and seeing uh, the, Alistair Cook, the, the Alistair Cook black and white uh, image mm. in one of his books mm. of a Marion, Indiana image. Uh, people standing, most of them indifferent, mm-hmm. some smiling or leering, and two teenagers, uh, black teenagers, uh, mutilated and dead mm-hmm. and hung in the tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just little, and I, I, the people standing there look like my mom's people, like really look like them, physically look like them. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the people hanging in the tree look like my dad's people. Wow. And I, I felt that break. Um, and I just wonder how we develop that sense as a country of an individual people in our mm-hmm. how do we develop that sense of um, of empathy how do we recapture that imagination how do we how do we embrace love in a way that 
I don't think we know how to do. Um, and just even talking about it makes me uh, uh, both excited by the possibility and by all of your work, but also really uh, feels like a lot. It does know. feel like a lot, but you know, one of the things that you're hearing is this demand to be accountable. Right, so you have to be accountable. So you know, part of the ways that you develop empathy is like, so that was my family. Right, these were my people. I might be complicit in some of the evil in the world, not just some of the good in the world. You know, to understand, you know, this big question: What does it mean to be human, Rebecca? Right? It's that we are complex, broken, fractured, fragmented people. That we're not perfect. That we're inconsistent. But to have compassion about that inconsistency, that you know, we have. To understand that what we inherit from our grandparents, our parents, isn't wholly good. And how do you sit with that? And how do you talk to your own kids about that? Mm-hmm. What do you think, David, needs to happen right now? I mean, to, to really cultivate uh, what you call the public life of love. Mm. I think a lot of humility and a lot of hubris. <laughs> is that all? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, at by the which, same time. Yeah, at the same time. You know, which which is also uh, to say, new forms of wisdom. You know, when I talk about humility, it's like you know, I listen to Jeff and I listen to Rebecca and I listen to you, Amy, and I'm truly humbled by not just the, the insights that you offer, but the ways in which you're engaging the world. And so I don't think like, oh, well, I wish I had make the point that. Rebecca just made. No, just I want to sit back and take it in mm-hmm. and say, how do, I, how do I learn from that? I listened to what Jeff had just said, and I'm just, how do I learn from that? Mm-hmm. But then also to feel the confidence that comes from that wisdom, to say, you know what, I can actually do something different in the world. I mean, the beauty of teaching for me is to meet with young folks and to say, you know what, for example, America doesn't have to be an exceptional nation. It actually can be a broken nation. And to watch them sit back and to begin to question and open up their imaginations. Say, like, how do I reimagine this past so that I can reimagine the future? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, when I was hearing you, Rebecca, talk about imagination, I was also feeling this creation of space. You know, so that being compassionate, being loving with each other is to create space for each other to find space, to make time. You know, those are loving acts. But, it, you know, you have to be accountable for that. I'm going to be responsible for creating these situations. I have to be responsible for that. I hope you're writing about this. <laughs> you know, I just want to address your premise, uh, Amy, which is that I think, you know, there's a way we on the left often say, like, how do we start? And I think that, like, there is a lot of love out there. There's a lot of beautiful, amazing oh, yeah. stuff out there. And so, like, we need more. We need to build on it. We need to be learn from it. We need to bring more people into it. But it is there. We are not bereft. Yeah. We are not poor. We are so rich. Yeah. And, you know, I keep mentioning, I was at Standing Rock last week where, yeah, you know, yeah. people are standing against the Dakota Pipeline. There's so, and it's a deeply spiritual movement. It's, there's a deep joy. There's deep love and solidarity. There's people from enormously different parts of the world standing uh, with these people and coming together. There's a deep love of the earth in it. You know, and that's like one thing. I could talk about Black Lives Matter. I could talk about the climate movement. I could talk about immigration rights and dreamers. You know, that there is. And I see people working across boundaries all the time. I think that, you know, I see people like my friend who's a Title IX lawyer 
at a UC campus, I see people doing this, and so many people are doing this work, and it's like it comes in many forms, and it's not always obvious to recognize the love that's in being a really good law professor or being a really good pediatrician or being a really good you know, traffic engineer or whatever, but that's, you know, there's a lot of it there. And I feel like where we, part of how we begin to build our strength is to assess that we already have so much. And when you start to see what's really there, and it's really amazing and, you mm. know, and that's where, you know, I believe that we will win. Wait, wait, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Were you like this as a kid? Because I would have loved not. to no, meet the I little, like, oh, the God, little no. girl. Oh God, no! No, I was like a miserable, battered, oppressed, withdrawn little, little, what have you. What happened? How'd you get to be this I'm voice re- first? I'm a contrarian. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a traveler. I kept moving and reinventing myself and my worldview. But as I was saying to Jeff on the way over, I got involved in Native American uh, rights struggles in the early 1990s, at the beginning of the environmental justice movement, and that. You know, watching that evolve over 10 years kind of made me hopeful. Watching both working as a historian and working as an activist, I felt like we need better stories. I saw us win and we didn't tell stories of victories. Mm. I saw where our power was and we didn't tell stories of the power. And I just felt like there's plenty of people telling us what's wrong out there. Like, I don't need to be redundant on that front. They have it really well taken care of. (laughs) I need to tell people the stories that make them act. I need to find where our power is. But I think there – and it's also like a lot of it is – comes out of being in the arts, being around visual artists who are very creative at assessing, saying, like, what are the metaphors? What are their assumptions? You know, that comes out of multiculturalism and feminist critique and postmodernism and visual artists and all these things. So, like, I feel like I've been lucky to have this strange labyrinthine path through all these parts of the culture and, like, every step somebody handed me a useful tool so I can go back and say, like, well, let's question the foundation that we don't have what we need. Maybe we have it. Maybe there's a toolbox and we just need to locate it and open it up, it, mm. you know, maybe and learn to use it. So that's that's where that comes from. Yeah, it's powerful. Thank one, you. I try. <laughs> one of the things that really strikes me, too, about everybody in this room's work is that we actually, um, we don't really have a Machiavellian view of human nature, <laughs> right? That we, yeah. that we actually... Um, really believe that folks are at base good Mm. and that we just need to like folks need to part of the work is to try to figure out how to release that Mm. (laughs) unleash that in the face of all of these forces and systems that are pushing us towards our worst natures um and and i i I, you know i I felt like the work that you did after uh katrina for instance and documenting what communities were doing to come together as if the, the, the sort of neoliberal idea that the whole world would con- kind of come to an end and it would end in this sort of barbarous sort of, right. you know, bloody apocalyptic end, which is, by the way, sort of the oldest story mm-hmm. uh, in American popular culture. The story of the white apocalypse mm-hmm. is like the, the white racial apocalypse is like one of the oldest stories in, in popular culture. But it didn't happen. 
It didn't happen well, in Sonoy. Well, Lapsa happens. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is my book about disaster, A Paradise mm. Built in Hell, which is about the fact that ordinary people are superlative in disaster, including Katrina. They improvise, they're creative, they're resourceful, they take care of each other, they're selfless. It's the authorities who panic, and they right. panic about the idea that everybody else is going to go crazy. And I think it's because they think that ordinary people are like them and that they're the... The ruthless, selfish, empathy-impaired uh, people, and they're out there. You know, you look at Katrina, and that was not a natural disaster. The hurricane didn't right, do no, a lot. The hurricane and even the collapse of the levees didn't do that much. Turning New Orleans into a prison city that's where right. poor people, mm-hmm, the right. mostly poor, mostly black people, were prevented from evacuating, help was prevented from entering, People were shot down in the streets by the police who decided private property was more important than human life. And the media, the mainstream media, and, you know, I should probably stop. But it's a that whole, was the day. It's yeah. a whole story <clears throat> that, that I'm super in, involved in. And I spent, you know, and it was interesting because it's about stories. The stories that the authorities believed in the mass media promulgated were part largely responsible, I think, for the more than 1,600 deaths in Hurricane Katrina. They have blood on their hands. And that had they already, had we all had that other story where it's like people are not going to go crazy. There's not going to be mass violence. People taking property mm. might be doing it to, you know, to help each other survive in the most altruistic way. Private property is not our highest value. If we had these other stories in place, which we're, we've tried to do with other disasters since then, then it could have been a, comp- like, it could have been a completely different story. You know, one of the things that you said to me in a conversation recently, Rebecca, is that, you know, people have forgotten their own power, mm-hmm. you know, that we have power. And if you bring this back to democracy, I mean, about hope and about love, we have so much more power than we often recognize. And we have so much more capacity than we recognize. Mm-hmm. What's that Mandela quote that we don't fear that we're powerless, but that we're powerful in mm. a sense? I Beyond think that, measure, it was Marianne yeah. Williamson, oh, who always oh, gets you. credit thank to you. Nelson Mandela. But yeah, mm. that we fear we're powerful yeah. beyond measure. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, and people... You know, everything in the mainstream conspires to tell us that we're powerless or that our power consists of going to the voting booth and punching a couple things every four years. But which is why I think a lot of the work is to tell people that how powerful we are and how we can stand. We stand up against corporations and governments and sometimes we win. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about celebrity earlier, about the ways in which celebrity culture makes us feel less than because we're not celebrities ourselves. Yeah. And my hope is that <clears throat> my hope is that the transformation, the transformational justice, will will shift from celebrity culture to celebration culture. Mm-hmm. That we'll actually begin to celebrate ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, not not What's... others but each other. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. That a celebrity is simply somebody who celebrated. So can we celebrate each other and that's ourselves right. and mm-hmm. everyone? That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna leave it at that. This has been. Uh, a real honor uh, for me. I mean, we we got here. We started out our conversation um, by you know celebrating Jeff Chang's new book. We gonna be all right. Notes on race and resegregation. And uh, Rebecca and Jeff are gonna be on stage at City Lights yeah. Books and yeah uh, in in San Francisco uh, talking about all these issues. Um, and I I just want to just uh, tell you congratulations on the book and how deeply needed. Uh, the, the conversation is. Um, so you have a website. I do. Uh, we have one for the book. It's called net and the general one is jeffchang.net. All right. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, uh, Rebecca, you. what are you working on? Well, I have an atlas of New York uh, that includes some very Jeff Chang stuff, like the birth of hip hop <laughs> as the Bronx was burning down, Ooh, coming out, coming stuff. out in the coming out in three weeks. I have another feminist wow. anthology coming out next year, and uh, and I keep trying to be a journalist. Like I did a piece on uh, standing the what I saw at Standing Rock yeah. in the Guardian on Monday. Yeah, no, that's wonderful, and I still can't get over the fact you're writing about hip hop in the Bronx. Oh wait, my just, God. wait, just give me one little quick fact. Something that nobody knows, but that you're writing about. Well, oh my God, uh, there's so many. And the fact that the Bronx was burning down and this amazing cultural phenomenon was rising up at the same time, it's just like we have we have a maybe the best map made of what burned down. There are parts of the Bronx where 90% of it was mm-hmm. burned down. Mm-hmm. And never mind 9-11, you want to see the ruins of yes. New York. That was it. And yet hip-hop rose up, and Inuit people, and people in every continent of the world are using hip-hop to express mm-hmm. their hope, their radical ideas, their self-determination, their power. And, like, why did that come out of the... Like, how did that happen? I still think it's one of the great mystical events of American history. <laughs> it's yeah, a miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle that so much in our mm. culture that came was born out of terror, right? Mm. Yeah. can be so beautiful and, mm. and reborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, what are you up to now? Well, I'm writing a modest little book on the public life of love, I'm trying to recuperate oh. some love. I, yeah, That's you know. great. And hopefully, hopefully staying in solidarity with these good folks, including you, Amy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so blessed to be in this space with you. Thank you. David Kim, Jeff Chang, Rebecca Solnit, thank you all for being on Democracy in Color. Thank you. Thank so you. Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, and produced by Lulu Matute, Andrea Calderon, Olivia Parker, with technical support from Anthony Hernandez. Special thanks to our guests, Rebecca Solnit, Jeff Chang, and David Kim. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, well, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.